Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Hard-edged, hard-nosed, hard to beat. Where are you coming from in this one? Your 100% essential download. Jim White and Simon Jordan. You let this get out of control. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. I'm Jim White, and on a special show today, I was joined by Carl Robinson and Paul Ince, who began by paying tribute to his former England manager, Terry Venables. We also debated great overhead kicks, asked how much of a threat Manchester United can be to the top four, and heard how Sir Alex Ferguson offloaded Paul Ince before trying to win him back. This is Outspoken with White and Jordan. Mr. Jordan is sunning himself in Spain. So, Paul Ince, I understand you know this man, Carl Robinson. Carl Robinson. Just a little bit. This is Paul Ince. You guys know each other really well. <laughs> well. Uh, we do. What was he like as a number two then in the dugout, Paul? Oh, Come on, hang dish on. it out. Hang <laughs> on. We're minutes it's Five past to, ten. To, to be fair, he was... I mean, I my son was at Liverpool as a, as a young kid. And um, this is how me and Carl really got together as a, as a one and two. And um, Carl used to be coaching the young under eights uh, Tuesday and a Thursday. And every time I used to take my son down, I used to watch my son train Thomas, and I used to pop nipping into the astro turf where Carl was training. And he was very enthusiastic. He was very good with the kids. He was. He really, really was. Still joking aside, he really, really was. And I thought to myself, I like the way he comes across. I like the way he gets the best out of the, the young kids training. So. When I took the uh, MK job, the first thing I did, I got on the phone to Carl and I said, you know, I'd love you to come and join me as a, as my number two, because um, he was a very, very good coach. And yeah. uh, that was the first impressions that I had. He was, he was still young, he was still learning his trade, but he was enthusiastic. Um, didn't really last long time I say that, but um, <laughs> at the time he was enthusiastic. And, um... It was going so well. <laughs> I just didn't have no response. Um, I knew what it was, was going to go. to work with? Oh, wow, a nightmare. It depends what day of the week it a was. Nightmare. No, it's the first time I ever, obviously, as you said, being a young coach and coming through the ranks and doing what I did, was seeing how important winning was. I, like, I know it's the most important thing in our game, but mm. this man over there, whatever it was, it was the Alex Ferguson trade, the Manchester United trade, there's something that he had built inside himself from a young person growing up, even at West Ham. Everything was about winning. Didn't matter what it was. Golf, football... I used to beat him at golf all the time, and it's the only time. Oh, really? I think the, I think the point of this show is his honesty, Cole. Okay, so if we're going to be honest, just, just be honest, it. you know I what I mean? It. But you were a winner. <laughs> you, that, I remember Sir Alex saying that. <laughs> you, you were a winner. The governor, you were a winner. You wanted to win at all costs, Paul. You did, and rightly so. And I think, listen, Cole was exactly the same. You know what I mean? I think... It's a trait that you get brought in that Alex Ferguson puts into you. You know, you want to win at all costs. Listen, does it, no one likes losing. No one likes losing. And, and he, he, yeah. here's a number two was probably worse losing than what I was. Yeah. You know, he was always arguing with the other people, you know, posing Doug out and say, Carl, just calm down, just it's focus on the game. <clears throat> and it was non-stop. And, but, but Paul was a winner and wanted to win in training. I think at Blackburn he even played in the training sessions. Oh, <laughs> was, it, was it not the case I, I with Gams Pedersen? Yeah, I actually used to enjoy the games on a Saturday more than refereeing the, the match <laughs> in the, the five-a-sides on a Friday. Would it kick no, off with he got No, it just, he had to win. I don't think people listening really understood 
like them areas of Man United and yourself and, and Roy Keane and people mm. like that it was a different breed and the, the kids coming through the academy nowadays I think that there's been a little bit of that lost like that pure will and determination to win and whatever it took and a Friday was and honestly the amount of times I got told so it used to be three minutes each way and if his team was losing there would be time we played 15 minutes one way just so we could win <laughs> and even the players were going just, just keep playing just keep playing where did you get this from were you always like that as a kid um, no I think since I turned I think for me you know as soon as I returned to manager and uh, I don't like to see players win I like to see the manager and the staff win you know what I mean so sometimes <laughs> I do honestly it's the way I've been so Cole's absolutely spot on He'll be refereeing it, we'll be 4-2 down, and the players will be going, come on, Gaffer, that's it. I said, no, we get back to 4-3. I said, Cole, two more minutes, two more minutes. Then they get a goal and say, no, that was offside, Cole, wasn't it? He goes, yeah, offside, Gaffer. So they blow the whistle. So <laughs> I just, I, it's quite good, really, because what it actually, it's actually doing is putting players in, in, in the mindset, say, if a team's coming back at them on the Saturday, how are they going to deal with it? Yeah. If they feel aggrieved that the referee's not made the right decision... How are they going to deal with it? So it's more about how they agree to get involved with circumstances. <laughs> and as long as I win it at the end of it, I don't, I don't really care. You know? <laughs> well, I always knew that about you. But then when you look at your career, West Ham, Manchester United, Inter Milan, Liverpool, Middlesbrough, Wolves, Swindon, Macclesfield. But those first five or so clubs, even first six, I mean, Paul, you played at the very highest level and the messages are coming in. So I'll throw one at you early on. Lewis is a West Ham fan. <coughs> Jim asked Paul, does he have any regrets about how he left us at West Ham? Looking back, was there more to it uh, that West Ham fans don't know because did he realise how much we loved them? Now, you were held in the highest esteem and still are by many West Ham mm -hmm. fans. And that was your club. But then, what? <laughs> oh, thanks Jim well, we said that this really is brilliant think, Jim this is great you know what I mean it's about time you're upgrading this show for once you know what I mean so, <laughs> who needs Simon uh, Jordan Simon, you're sitting so, in his yes. chair incidentally <laughs> no, so come on no, give he was, Lewis he an was answer sitting in my chair Jim get it right got you, got you. Um, I think when I look at the situation and I go back to the great John Lyle you know who, who was a he was a father figure to me just growing up you know as a kid um, and um Pre-season came and uh, John Lowe lost his job. Yeah. And, and I, we couldn't believe it. We were absolutely devastated. Lots of me, Tony Cotty, McAvaney, people like that, Devonshire, you know, that, all those top, top, top players. Um, and I, I, I was in a proceed or actually agreeing a contract with John Lowe and West Ham for the next three, four years. I was living in, in, in a rough area where my um, car kept getting cut. Roof, a little 1.3 cable lake. I was absolutely beautiful. A white one, typical white oh, cable wow. lake. Imagine me driving a white sure. cable lake. <laughs> so, anyway, so um, uh, it kept getting sliced up because it was right outside a pub called the Piper's Arms in uh, Beckenshire Eve. So, um, anyway, so the bottom. <laughs> Where used to leave it? Okay. <laughs> well, my house was there, the pub was there, so I had no choice. So, I'd agreed with John Lowell that we'd get a new contract, things were going well. Um, then he got sacked. Lou McCarvey came in, contract wasn't now. You know, obviously at the time, I think it was a, I think it was about a thousand pound a week. So it's mad, isn't it? When you think about it, was about a thousand pound a week. Um, but I think it was kind of agreed at my age, you know, it, it, it wasn't uh, something that I should be getting. So that was the start of it for me. Right. Okay. I, mean, I vaguely remember, <clears throat> I mean, you'll cut me dead, I know, but I'm going to say it. <clears throat> Were you not pictured in the Manchester United shirt so, before you'd actually signed for, so, before you'd left West Ham? So, so yeah, so I'm going to go to the second phase of the, of the story. Um, so then there was an interest from Sir Alex Ferguson, Manchester United. My agent at the time was um, Ambrose Mendy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we know Ambrose, don't we? You know, I know him, yeah, Ambrose yeah. very, very well. Um, so he said, right, listen, I think this is going to go down. So I, said, I, was, I was going to Malta, I think. I was going somewhere with my wife or girlfriend at the time. And... Um, he said, rather well, than come back, let's get it done up at the end of the, at the end of the season, Carl, as you do. You haven't got to come back to the picture. So that was it. So get the picture done before you go off. <coughs> All so right, the, so, so you did that in good faith. I did that in everything. good faith. Think right, once right. the deal was done, put it in the papers. Yeah. Um, but it got out. What happened was, I think it was, I actually remember, that if I'm rightly, it was in one of the libraries. I think it was the mail or one of those. So they were looking for a picture of me just in the West Ham kit. 
just to put it out that this deal could go through to Mate United, X, Y, and Z. And they found this picture of me in a Mate United shirt. Ah. Ah, yeah. Ah, ah. It was ah. <laughs> it was and it ah. all kicked off, did and it? And it all kicked off. And Do you regret that, no? The timing of that? I, I don't think... I think as, as a young player, you're kind of governed by your agent. You know, and if your agent says to you, Paul, listen, this deal's going to go through by, before you get back, then then you kind of do it. I would get the consequences of it. I do, but I think at the time... It was funny because when I came back to West Ham, we played Swindon, Swindon away one, um, and half the fans were saying, Incincy want we want you to stay. The other ones were going, Incincy, get rid. Uh, we, we get up, rid. We, yes. we, we ended up winning 1-0. Yeah. And I, was, I scored. So it kind of made me start thinking, do I want to stay? Um, but then it got a bit hostile and, you know, my wife was getting, you know, pelt was in the stand and that, and I thought, you know... It's, it's, I need to move on. Yeah, Whatever there comes happens, a point. There comes a point where enough's yeah. enough. And yeah. Um, yeah. it was funny. I was training at the training ground and Ronnie Boyce came over to me and said, Paul, listen, uh, someone wants to see you at the hotel. So I'm thinking, all these things are going through my mind. All these things. You know, like, you know when you're at school, Carl, and like, mm. they said the headmaster wants to see you and you think... How well, do you remember school? <laughs> 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 but, you know what I'm saying? What year were you when this was the old good This was 1920. Oh, right. You right. know, you know, the headmaster wants to see you and you're kind of walking, thinking, yeah. what have I done? I'm a, no, I was good. So I'm thinking, he wants to see him in the hotel. So I get, get in the car with Ronnie Boyce, drive to the hotel, get upstairs, and so Alex Ferguson sit there in the chair with a cup of tea. And that was it. To be fair, you know, he was great. It was it was like... Because as a young 19-year-old cocky, cocky West Ham kid, <laughs> I didn't really know a lot about Alex Ferguson. I didn't know the greatness of the man until I actually played with him. Um, but just the way he was sat, we had his legs crossed. He had a, we'd just have a mug of tea, wouldn't we, Carl? He had a saucer, he had a spoon on the side, and it was like all prim and proper. And I thought, who's this cowboy? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but you must be enormously flattered that there he was sitting there and he wants to oh, talk oh, to you, was, he wants to get you to his club. Yeah, because of the situation, obviously, he, yeah. he wanted me there. Sure. Then I failed the medical, which made it even 10 times as well. I had a medical. Uh, failed the medical, and I thought, oh, my God, I've got to go back to West Ham now. That was it. And I was like, I was in tears. My wife was in tears. You know what I mean? It was like, it, we'd agreed a six-year deal. Everything was failed the medical. Um, that was it. Went back to West Ham, sat in the stands, um, kept getting caned, <laughs> as you do. And then to fair, I got a phone call from and said, listen, Paul, we don't care whether you've got a little problem with your groins or not. We're taking you. We're making this happen. And to refer to him, that's that he kept his word. And um, it's still great for me that, you know, because I'm a West Ham boy. I grew up at West Ham. You know, West Ham's my first team. So it does kind of grate me sometimes that fans still remember. It was like, team was 25 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Long time years ago. Exactly. You know, you've got to move on or something. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But, it's quite a story, though, Paul, when you hear it stage by stage by stage there. Mm. Uh, anyway, the good news for you is you're with us this morning. You're 100% essential download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. very sad breaking news. Uh, TalkSport can confirm the former England manager Terry Venables has passed away at the age of 80. Going to have a crack. He is, you know. Oh, it's Brilliant! And Gaza with the kisses and being kissed tonight. Look at Terry Venables. Terry was, uh, was phenomenal at getting to uh, the confidence of the players and to make an understanding is revolutionary. He was way, way ahead of, ahead of the game when, when he started involved on a coaching career. He was just incredible to work for. Footballing genius is probably about right, really. Uh, he'd like to get to know everybody. He was a magnificent man. He had time for everybody. Um, he, he was one of those people who filled up a room when he walked in, he had a wonderful aura about him. And the Germans go into the final. It's hard to take because you've you've gone around the world in different clubs and you end up with penalties and that's that's always been a difficult to, to think. Well, we haven't lost, but we haven't won. One of the very first British coaches to get that big Barcelona job as well. It was so clever when he was introduced there, and he said a few words in Spanish to get the the Catalan fans behind him from the start. He was a very clever operator. Only people who all stick up for him are the people who played football under him. Um, and the people he managed all just adored him. And there it is, Tottenham Hotspur have won the FA Cup for a record eighth time. Terry Venables triumphant. Very 
very sad news the passing of uh, Terry Venables at the age of uh, 80. I mentioned Paul Ince in studio. Nobody better to talk about Terry Venables this morning. But before we get to that stage, as a player, Venables made more than 500 appearances for Chelsea, Tottenham, Queen's Park Rangers and Palace. Uh, but he really made his mark as a coach and a top coach at that. And as you heard in that moving tribute, he took England to the semi-finals of the European Championships in 1996, memorably beating Holland 4-1 at Wembley before being knocked out on penalties to Germany. And one man who was part of all that is sitting <coughs> to my right, Paul Ince. Um, Paul, you worked with the man so closely, especially mm. in that incredible Euros campaign. Um, what, what was your... Well, first off, what was your reaction when you, you heard the news? Obviously very, very sad. You know, you think, you know, eight is no age. You know, it really is not. It really is not. And listen, I, I'd heard news that Terry was wasn't well. I knew, and I, I knew he wasn't well over the last few years. But it still comes as a massive, massive shock. You know, a lot of sadness, and you just listen to all the tributes that have come in, that have flooded in since his passing, and it just shows the respect that he's had from so so many people mm. at so many different levels. And um, I'm very fond of um, Terry. Obviously, come from Dagenham, same club as place. You know, um, which is you know, very rare. Um, but as as a manager, it was it was fantastic. I remember when I went to Inter Milan in 95, 96, um, first three months I struggled, you know, with the language, you know, the game of football, the way it plays, you know, I, I did struggle and um, I started to worry because I thought, you know, the Euros was coming up in 96, just going to not playing well. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't in a couple of squads, so I missed a couple of squads and I thought, hmm, that, I might miss out here. Oh, I'm going to miss out here. And this, uh, that was a concern because we missed out in 94, World Cup in in, in in America. And then we played Napoli one day um, at the San Siro and all of a sudden, as I've left the game, the hotel's there. And he said, listen, Paul, I know it's been a tough. I know it's been... You've got memory managing Spain, so I know it's been tough. I know what it's like, you know, being in a different country. He said, just get yourself back playing where you are and you'll be playing in Euro 96. That's all you need to tell you. And I thought that was just a relief to say that's the type of the man he was, you know. And um, really, you didn't know he was going to be there. I didn't know he was going to be there. Right, he just turned up, and he, yeah. you know, um, so keep playing the way you're playing. You, you, you'll, you'll be starting for me in Euro '96, and that was the type of man he was. Um, but it was just the way he coached players. You know, I'm a coach. Carl's a coach, and you know, you hear people say he's very ahead of the years. That is, Glenn Hoddle was the same. You know. Um, but when the coaching session was going on, he'd just go round to each player, whether it's the right back or the centre half, and he'd just have a little quiet word in your ear. Just a little bit of details, you know, just to make you feel that special. You know, then they come to me and say, Incy, just be careful. Don't be running forward too much. I'll allow you two in each each half. Just little things like that. And um, it was surprising because when we played uh, the Dutch and we had a meeting before the Dutch game and we had this kind of vision that, right, we're going to sit back, you know, you know, let the Dutch come onto us and try and break. And he said, no, absolutely no chance. So we're at Wembley. You know, everyone says that the Dutch have got total football. We're going to go and play the Dutch at their own game. And we looked at him and said, must be bananas. You know what I mean? He can't make it right. And lo and behold, he knew. He was so confident in what he was doing. And he had this. He brought his calmness to the team. He brought his calmness to each player that we believed in whatever he said we were going to go and achieve. And when we went after the Dutch game... I had kind of mixed emotions after the Dutch game, if I'm being totally honest, because I got booked in that game. So I was suspended for the Spanish game. And Terry took me off. And I was absolutely, if you see it, I was absolutely you livid. Yeah. I was fuming. I was, yeah. I was, you know, first, it's one of the greatest games of all time, beating Holland 4 1. And then El Tell takes me off. And I'm, if you watch the footage, you see me just, you know, push me out away from Brian Robson and that. And I'm fuming after the game. One, because I'm going to miss the Spanish game. Two, I was enjoying the Dutch game. Um, and then El Tell just came over and just that cheeky smile and put his arm around me. He said, listen, you get through to the Spain game, you'll definitely be playing against Germany, so let's hope we win. And just a comforting message here, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And it just calms yeah. you down and, you know, everyone loved him. You know, you, you, he was a player's player. You treat him as a, as a lad, as one of your friends, but you knew how far you could take him. And when it came down to being serious... That, that finds a line from being a player's mm. player and a manager and you listen to what he said and, you know, he's going to be sadly, sadly missed him. There's lots of arguments. What is the the greatest England generation? 
there'll be many arguments about that. But for me, how did I want to ask Paul this? I'm going to interview you for a bit. This would be good. Sure, this. Yes. <laughs> how did Teddy Venables manage like Shearer, Sheringham, Wright, Ferdinand, Fowler? Now mm. that's a, a generation of strikers that no England managers had to deal with since maybe Glenn a little bit with Michael Owen came along. It's not that doesn't happen today. There's not that wealth mm. of maybe top top strikers, maybe two or three in the Premier League who are English. I look at that list, and that is frightening. Yet everyone seemed happy from the outside. What was it like on the inside and well, managing I, them? I, five? I think when you talk about, especially the Shearer situation, because at the time, if you if you remember during that season, Alan Shearer wasn't scoring goals. Les mm. Ferdinand got Player of the Year. Okay, Les Ferdinand was the number one striker at the time, as far as going into a, a European tournament. Yeah. You know, and, and the press and everyone was saying, Les has got to start. Les has got to start. You know, and, and I'll tell and Shearer will tell you the same story. He come up to me and says, "Listen, you're starting. You're starting my team up front." And speaking to Les, as I know Les very, very well, he was absolutely devastated. You know, because you know we talk about players now, and you know Southie picking players on form. If anyone was going to start in Euro '96 on form, it was Sir Les Ferdinand. Yeah. Um, so he was absolutely devastated. So there was a disappointment. In there, and you've got to be disappointed, you know. Lo and behold, Shuri went on to be the top scorer yeah. in, in Euro '96. Um, but it was always that SAS when it Shearer and Sheridan when it that was always they complemented each other so so well. You know, listen, I saw Les play with Alan Shearer at Newcastle, but when you're playing in European football, it's a lot more tactical stuff that comes with it. You know, Teddy used to come in and drop into spaces, used to drag centre halves out of positions they, they didn't want to be in, you know, and it's tough to manage. These egos, you know, as you say, it's different when Michael Owen came along, you know, as a young kid or Robbie yeah. Fowler. They were young. Mm. But we were talking about senior players here. We were talking about senior players, Robbie Fowler. God, one of the greatest strikers I've ever ever seen. Yeah. Can't get in the side. You know, so, but I think he managed, it was a bit like Sir Alex Ferguson in, in a way, you know, managing all those egos. People talk about winning trophies and the best manager can manage egos. You know, talk to players when they're not playing, make them feel like they're still part of it, even though they're not starting the game. And Terry Venice was unbelievable at that. And it was tough. It's tough. You want to, everyone wants to play in Euros, don't they? Mm. Did, he, did he, though, <clears throat> like you say, egos? Every, every professional athlete and every human being carries some sense of ego mm. through their life. And But these are big, big players. And mm. it, was he that much of a big, big manager? Did the, the players look at him and go, Wow, because you've been at Barcelona, did that give mm. him the gravitas a little bit? Because being at Barcelona is almost like that's, top, that's the top. ultimate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the Barcelona, the Man United, yeah. Liverpool's. Mm. But because he'd been there, did the players respect him initially when he walked in because of Barcelona, and then they grew to like him because how tactically good he was? No, I, I, I think um, he was a likable character anyway. If you've never, if you've never met Terry, the first minute he walked through the door, you say, "I'm going to get on with this man." Because you just know, you just have that feel about him. And listen, whether he was at Barcelona, Real Madrid, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah, at yeah. the end of the day, players want to play in the European Championships. They want to play in Euro 96. And if they're not playing, they're not going to be happy. But, but they never at any time showed it on their face. You yeah. know, they never walked around you know, moping and that. And he had that way of keeping the whole 22, 24 players, you know, in, in, in the right frame of mood. Did he have a special way of dealing <clears> with, with Gaza? <laughs> <laughs> How long we got? Um, I think they were very close. You know, I mean, I said they were very close. Him and Gaza, and I think um, Gaza needed a lot of attention. Um, wonderful, 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 wonderful player. Wonderful player. Um, but you know, he kind of let Gaza because he loved his fishing. Gaza. So sometimes, like when we'd finish training in the afternoon, Gaza want to go fishing. You know, and Tell will say, "Listen, you can go for two hours, but if you're not back in two hours, bang." So it, well, even during the Euros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you know, because <laughs> because you've got to remember, there's a lot of time, Jim. Yeah. Between yeah. games, you know. Yeah. And all this about sitting in hotel rooms and you know, you know what Gaza's like. He can't sit for one minute. He needs to be on the go and doing things. So that Gaza respected, tell you know, to the, where he said, "Listen, I go for two hours and I'm back and I'll be back in that time." Um, and you and got what, to, and was he? It was, and you got to give Gaza a little bit of freedom that responsibility and <laughs> we know how funny he is and I can sit here all day tell you some stories about Gaza but I won't um, but he is and um, Gaza was a special player so when Carl mentions about the generations you know I heard, yeah. I heard someone Glenn, Glenn say Glenn Hoddle an hour ago he said that this generation is probably best equipped to win the 
when, when there's been a major trophy. You know, I totally disagree. I really do. I think when you go back to 96, when you go back to 98, when you go back to Scolzi and Rio and people like that, you know, and this is why I talk about Eltel because I look at two of the best managers we've ever had as a nation, forward-thinking, innovative, Terry Venables, Glenn Hoddle. English. You know, English. Both lost their jobs for unrelated football reasons. Yes, true. Very, very true. true. Who is better between the two? Different, different, different ways, different characters, different way of approaching things, uh, different personalities, but very, very clever tactically. Um, both geniuses. And I, and to this day, I believe, I believe that if we'd have kept one, but either, either of them, we wouldn't be sitting there saying we haven't won a trophy since 1966. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I honestly believe that. I'm, say, I'm saying English, especially before saying English, but actually two managers who actually worked abroad before they came back and, mm. uh, and took the national job. I think it, it's they had the, the the ability to look beyond the years and at that stage and not be fearful to manage abroad, mm. learn a language, learn a different way of playing and actually use some of the tactical understanding of the continent and maybe brought it back. It was slightly probably different for the mm. England players who just played in England. For me, that them two managers, I spoke to him for many, many hours generally after after midnight with a drink about <laughs> managers and players and the, the three people that always come up, Salas Ferguson, obviously, um, Terry Venables and Glenn Hoddle, only being three people that you've really spoke highly of as managers. There's been other managers you've liked and got mm. on with at different stages in your career, but they were three that always kept coming up in conversation. So when he, when, so when he speaks now, it's not just yeah. because of what's happened recently, yeah, it's been it. a consistent respect sure. that mm. all the way through his life for them. I, I mean, I still remember, Paul, <clears throat> Look at the front page of the newspapers, the tabloids. The dentist chair. Uh, and we all, and we all that looked like some night out, didn't it? That looked like <laughs> that looked like there could be no better a night out than that one. So we mm. won't go into the fine detail of it, but it looked like the wheels had come off completely. So how, how did he cope with all of that? <laughs> he can't remember. <laughs> for, those, for those who don't know, for those who are listening this morning who don't remember, it, yeah, what was it about? Well, <laughs> it's, oh, it's be listen, good. It's, um, listen, first and foremost, it was a fantastic trip. Going to Hong Kong, you know what I mean? Really, really good. You were in Hong Kong and then what happened? Well, we had a night out. We had a night out, as we, we you do. Um, obviously, things got a, a bit out of hand. Listen, it, it wasn't a situation, and I'm not trying to make it sound worse than what it was, but... Don't keep looking at me. No, because just... It wasn't a situation where yeah. people were fighting and there was, you know, it was a bunch of lads maybe going a little bit over the top, drinking too much drink. Yeah. Um, and obviously the picture of guys in the dentist chair um, getting pulled down his throat. I think it's the dentist's chair for a reason. It's not just for the England team. It's for everybody who goes every Saturday night, every Friday night. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the ramifications from it after... Uh, from the press point of view... Oh, they went mad. They went absolutely mad. And this is where you saw Terry at his best. Yeah, yeah. This is where you saw, you know, when everyone was against us, everyone was slaughtering us, you know, and um, he remained calm. And he, and he, and he, he stood his stance, you know what I mean? What he believed in, you know, he wasn't... He was upset, he was disappointed because of, you know, the, the public, the demand of how they, if they fought about the England team... You know, I always want to start drinking. We've got a big tournament coming up and they're getting lashed out their heads. Uh, that was disappointing. But as a group, he dealt with it. And he said, listen, this is the fuel that you need to fire your campaign mm. in Euro 96. And we knew after the first game against Switzerland, which wasn't the greatest game, we drew 1-1. The press were having a field day and they kept bringing it up and bringing it up. And he remained calm and he backed the team, he backed the players, he backed the Gaza um, because he knew what he had in that change room. And... I think Carl mentioned before about lesser characters would have folded. But when you got people like Shear and Sheridan and Gaza and Piercy and that, you know, we had the right kind of mentality as a team to just kind of push that press stuff aside. We knew what we had in the, in this change room. And we mm. knew, mm. yes, it was great in Hong Kong, but we knew we're here to play now. We're here for business. And our mindset changed from that to that. You were there on that night, right? I can't, I can't quite I think remember I, I the think picture. I think I went home early, Jim. Oh, you yeah. went home early. Of course you did, Paul. I mean, could you believe what you were witnessing? Did you think, we're going to be reading about ourselves here? To be fair, Jim, I'll be totally honest with you because that's the type of man I am. I wasn't actually there. I was actually sitting around the corner talking to Brian Robson. 
Okay, honest, honest truth. And this was all going on around the this corner. This was going around the corner of me. Right. So I, I was sitting next to Brian Robson because Robson was my idol, and you know, traveling with me was was unbelievable. And it was only the next morning when I woke up that people talking about the dentist chair, and, and I think, what's going on now? Do we believe him, Carl? I, I wouldn't lie. I'd, 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 I'd tell you, I'd tell things how they are. It wasn't are. there when the picture was taken. No, no, I, I, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> and then, and then, I'm only saying he read, this, he read what went on. It was a text of somebody, definitely. No, no, just, I, I'm honest. I, I don't have yeah. to lie. That's the way I am. You know, I'm, I no, was I actually talking to Brian Robson. Yeah. And it was only the next morning when all the lads were going, oh, what a great night. I was, I was in the vicinity, but I wasn't actually where it was going on. But when I saw the pictures from the News of the World, <laughs> <laughs> and you look at all the players with their... Shirts torn and tear in that, and I thought, "Wow, this ain't going to go down too well." Um, and listen, listen, we got we got a, a rollicking from Eltel, the whole as a squad. You know, it wasn't just about individuals; it was about us as a squad. But I love what you said. He mm. used that adverse publicity positively to fire us into the campaign. I mean, that and was, we used that it. Was like, brilliant. About, like, what a team, what a manager, and what a generation that was for yeah. the country, and, and being yeah. in England as well. Sometimes you have moments in your life. If this is a sport, people listen to the show because we love sport and we love football. Mm. But they're moments that we'll always go back to. And for someone like Sir Terry Venables to conduct himself in the way that he did from the outside looking in, now as a manager, it was you. You do look for moments, don't you? In, mm. in in a team where something has gone wrong that you can actually use to to galvanise a group of people, yeah. being able to galvanise a group of people with the talents of their team, exactly, and bring them all together. You're right, Carl. You're it, right. It, and it, and I've seen something the other day. Someone saying, "What if they should have won that? There was no." You should have won them Euros. And it wasn't a yeah. case of lack of talent. It was yeah. moments in it, a little bit of luck mm. that didn't fall our way. Paul, so many listeners are absolutely hooked on your story. So many messages coming in. But take me to the break. After you went out, after Gareth's penalty miss, what was Venables like in that dressing room? I think like what we were all like, you know, was absolutely devastated. As, as Carl just mentioned, we, we felt that we had the best team in the tournament. We felt we had the best players Um <clears throat> at home, home of football. Um, How did he handle it? What did he say? <sighs> it's hard to actually remember what he said because you're so sucked in your own disappointment as, as as a player. Because if you can imagine, you know, the build up, you know, from Switzerland to the Scotland game. Sorry to mention that, Jim, but no the problem. Scotland game. Um, <laughs> and the crowds got better. You know, our country was going through a bad time. The whole country. Yes. And it brought everyone together. And the more we travelled to the games, the more people were hanging outside the pubs, the more people were standing on the streets. And it was just bringing a smile to everybody's faces. So when he when lost to that, for me personally, it was like, this is all going to stop now. You know, there's not going to be people out in the street. There's not going to be... But it's one of those things that you remember for the rest of your life, isn't it? And Terry was like that. I, I, I wasn't that fussed... Because uh, I thought Terry was going to carry on. In my mind, Eltel was going to be there for the World Cup campaign. Um, so not to have him there uh, was very, very sad and disappointing. But I think at the time, when you get knocked out, you can't say anything. No one says anything. You sit in the change room and it's deadly, deadly silence. You know, and it was for about 15, 20 minutes. No one said a word. You know, you felt for selfie. Um, but then at the end of the day, we just thought, right, let's kick on to the 98 World Cup. And um, unfortunately, Eltel wasn't there to do that. Did you? I mean, you you were a bad loser. That's what mm. made you such a good pro. Mm. Did you put an arm around Gareth? No, no. I, I think it's it's always hard to console someone. It's like when I missed a penalty in um, in France, ninety eight against Argentina. It's um, it's it's always hard to console. So sometimes you just people try to. Yeah, but say, you don't want it. You, you don't want it, you know what I mean? I just, and when they yeah. did it to me, I was like, no, just let me have my time. I'll get over it, get over it in my own time. And I think... You know, for Southie, it was a case. It was the same case. I mean, listen, you try to some say, don't worry, but to him, you know, it's, it's, it's not great, is it? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. We're talking now about that goal yesterday. Alejandro Garnacho. What a strike. Scissors kick right into the back of the net. Pickford didn't get near it. Is that better than Rooney's against Manchester City? Is it better than Benteke's in the Liverpool shirt? Is it the best of the lot, Paul? You know what? Actually, I've got to throw in Gareth Bale, Champions League final. Is it about the goal or is it about the goal moment. moment? And I think to score in a Champions League final over a kick that Gareth Bale did was sensational and before the show me and Colman and yourself were talking about which was the best one and I think Robbo was absolutely spot on he mentioned Trevor Sinclair and we really watched it didn't we and for me QPR QPR for me that's the best one that's the best one I always think over a kick better than Bale's in a European Cup final I think technically technically better but I just think the moment was a European Champions League final I always think over a kicks are quite lucky I think because you don't know actually where the ball's going to go you know, you're facing back towards the target. It can go anyway, can it, Cole? When you think about it. I, I, you said, you think before, it... I said before, you said, I don't tell lies, but you've just told lies. You've sat out there before, right? <laughs> you turned around and said, what about my one against Blackburn at Wembley? <laughs> no, Luke said that. I, I, I didn't even know. I was talking about the one I scored against QPR. Oh, wait, I was told there was two. There was another two. There was, there was four. I scored two in in, in, in CBR also. Oh, um, oh, but so they were lucky then, yeah? Huh? They, they all four were lucky. But the, for, so you didn't was... have a clue where they were going? As an over kick, as over someone's doing over kick, you're just thinking hit the target, hit the target. That's one of very rare over kicks. And um, what about the one in Syria for Inter Milan? Who against whom? Um, Calgary. Again, it's one of those you just hope to hit the target. <laughs> I'm not. Listen, I'm just saying, Jim. I'm, I just believe there's an element of luck in over kicks. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. technically, it was fantastic. Was it better than Wayne Rooney's? I'm not too sure. I still think the Trevor Sinclair one uh, was the best one. I think, listen, whatever way you want to put it, it was a wonder goal, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Like the, mm. To have the bravery yeah. and the, it's more, I think... It's not brave, the, is it? The, the Ronaldo score one for Juventus as well. Yeah, yeah. In Champions League. No, the bravery to try it. I think the, the, to have that understanding and to think, to be able to throw your body and to technically still do control... You, do you think, if you look at the Rooney over kick and uh, Ganacho, do you think that these goals happen because the cross are bad? Yes. Yeah. 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 But to be able to think on, because obviously you want the cross to be in front of you, you can yes, want it to head exactly. up to volley right. because it. the cross has gone back. Yeah. Because yeah. this is a bad yeah. cross. You've, you've got to get out of You're forced to actually do that, aren't you? You're forced yeah. to do that. I mean, it's a great goal. Isn't it? I think one of yours with deflection on it, the end of the great ball, but deflection. <laughs> That's right. There's a, there's a message you sent from the Calgary goalkeeper. He never meant it. Um, Paul, what's his you... name? <laughs> where, where are you at with Manchester United then? One of your former clubs, mm. and so many United fans are listening intently to you this morning. Mm. So I, I think they're coming up in the rails in what is a completely unpredictable. Premier League. Yeah, I, I listen. I, I think you're right. If you look at the the points of where the four, five, six teams are in the league, there's not there's only three or four points in between them. You look at everyone's talking about Liverpool, the resurgence of Liverpool, and yes, rightly so. The, the transformation they had from last year has been un- unbelievable under Jurgen Klopp. Um, and obviously, we will talk about City, Arsenal. And then we talk about UI Emery, Aston Villa, you know, and what Tottenham are doing and the uh, Poshkar. 
United have not been playing well. And I say this, people say, what do you mean not been playing well? We've won five out of the last six. They've not been playing well. You look at the Brentford game, scored in the last minute, the Fulham game. Fulham made three mistakes to allow them, uh, Fernandes, to score. You know, played Luton. So they're playing teams that you expect them to beat without actually playing well. And when you listen to Ten Hag and you know, he talks about, you know, being organised and running harder than players, I get that. So when you when you say to me, Jim, that United are sneaking up on the rails, I still feel there's a lot more to come from Manchester United. I don't think they're even nowhere near playing their best football. We look at the teams that they've played and no disrespect to the teams that they've played, you expect them to beat them, Cole, you know what I mean? I really, really do. Have they turned a the corner? I don't think so. I think they've got some very good, talented players, as we saw um, on Sunday. Can they get better? Yes, they can get better. The Fulham performance wasn't great. They nick a result. Good, good winning teams or Premier League winning teams pick up points when they're not playing well. Yeah. Okay. They seem to have done that, but now they've got to switch it on. What do you do back f- Ten Hag? <clears throat> yeah, I do. I do. I, f- I think it's um, when you go from uh, other pundits done. But you, you're behind them. What, I th- I th- what we got? Listen, I think when you think about Sir Alex Ferguson being there for so, so many years now, you know, obviously Moyes, he went there. It's always a poison challenge for David Moyes. You know, it was like when in, in Miami went to Arsenal after Wenger. It's always going to be a poison challenge. Um, Moyes didn't get enough money, enough finances. We've gone from then Van Gaal, we've gone to Mourinho, we've gone to Solskjaer. We can't keep sacking managers. We can't keep sacking managers. And, you know, I'm, I'm for one think that Ten Hag has changed the way the club conducts itself. We saw the rubbish with Pogba and Mourinho coming out in the press. So Alex Ferguson was one of those. You try to keep everything indoors, Jim. You know, no one at least everyone wants to talk about Man United. Everyone's whether they win, lose, or draw, their back pages, their front pages. You know, everyone wants to talk about Man United. And this is why you look at the Sancho situation with Ten Hag, that could have been dealt with better. Um, but You're I think, right, it would never <clears> happen if Fergie was in charge. It never would have happened. You know, and I think, but as far as winning games on the pitch, they're winning games. But I do agree with Jim. I think it's an open, open, open race this year, Carl. It's wide open, Carl, isn't it? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm looking, as Paul's talking there, I'm looking at the first six, seven, eight. There's only six points between United in sixth and Arsenal who lead the way. I still don't think. They're still in it. I, I don't think so. I, I think I think there's, there's I know there's a points thing that you're saying there in the league table, but I, I still think there's a gulf with them three at the top of the Premier League. I really do. I think there's then there's four or five teams underneath that that sort of yeah you, you can argue would they sit top of that four underneath it with like the Chelsea, Tottenham in that Villa. Under Emery, who were playing really well, and obviously mm. Manchester United. For me, yesterday, I did think at certain stages they showed a tremendous sense of control in the game. For the first time, it's been a bit of a flippancy into some of the games, and a bit of a, a bit open, a bit uneased when teams have got at them. I felt at certain stages yesterday they probably showed a better sense of calmness in and out of possession. I still don't think I still to break that to me. Man City and Liverpool are. I know it doesn't sit right now, but are the best <coughs> two. But I think Arsenal in that three. I can't see Man United getting anywhere near them three. Well, that's it. I mean, I think they're going to be challenged. I mean, the next three games, they've got Galatasaray, Chelsea and Newcastle, um, which are going to be tough games. I didn't even mention Newcastle and that underneath. Uh, yeah, so. just a lot of teams. A lot of teams. Mate, not a need to improve. You know, you're probably right. If you ask any Mate United fan, are we equipped to go and win the title? No, we're not. But what, what I've noticed this year... How far away are they, Paul? Or what's a good season, <laughs> do you think? But I think Champions League football for Man United is a good season. But I think it's one of these situations where you look at it's going to be a weird season. You talk about the injury, mm. injuries teams are having at the moment. Yeah. You talk about the World Cups. You talk about all, all I hear managers saying, man, we've got six, seven players out. You look yeah. at Tottenham, you know, Man City. See you know I mean? So I think it might be a ch- chance where they could probably just sneak up on the rails, you know, if you keep your players fit. But I, I what, and win it. I'm not saying win it, but I agree. I agree with Cole. I just think maybe no one's talking about Manchester United because they're winning games but not actually playing well. Um, they've got some top top players. I don't think they're playing well as 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 a team. But I think making that all about moments, individual brilliance. They have been for the last maybe a couple of years. Yeah. Once they get them playing as a team, they might surprise you. I don't think no one's going to run away with the league this year, Cole. I don't no, think, I, agree I, think, I think it's I agree great that now that we've got a Premier League where we've got four or five teams vying to win stuff. It's more exciting. Mm. Um, but do, you tr- do you trust this United side, Paul, <laughs> to achieve something? I think you, you always got to, not trust is not the word, Jim, I think you always got to believe they can see, uh, achieve right, something. Because right. you think, making out on their, on their day, they could beat anybody mm. on their day. It's a question how many times do they have on their days. You know, they've got a massive game midweek mid- mid- against Galatasaray. Can they go there and win? Of course they can, if they're on their game. 
what I've seen over the last three or four weeks, they've not been on their game, but they've shown resilience mm. and organisation mm. yeah. to pick up the points. If they win at Newcastle next Saturday night, yep. wow. <clears throat> what a message that sends, Carl. That'd, that'd be a massive Doesn't result. It? I think that, that is, like you're saying, Galatasaray in Europe, mm. I think in the Premier League, that'd be, the, yeah. that'd be a real challenge. We're going to be up in Newcastle on Friday doing the show from there. Uh, there's a lot, so, uh, what an understatement, there's a lot riding on it. Of course mm. there is for both clubs. But of course, Newcastle got PSG before that. Course, yeah. um, Manchester United say Galatasaray. But Paul, if they win at St James's Park, what a statement win that is. Well, it is because we know we're at Newcastle just thumped Chelsea for one at, at St James's. Yeah. So we yeah. know it's a tough, tough to place, place where, to go to. Where are you in Rashford? <clears throat> Ooh, good question. I, th- I, think, I think with uh, Marcus, I think his form's not been great. There's been a, last year, was, he was sensational. He was, I mean, Top goal scorer, twenty or games goals in the Premier League. I thought it was unbelievable. This year, it seems to have taken its toll. I think Mate United wouldn't have been where they were last year if it wasn't for Marcus Rashford with the goals that he was scoring, the way that he was playing. This year, he kind of dropped off it, and I kind of, kind of sensed looking at him, the body language doesn't seem to be where it was where it was last year. Um, and I look at the whole team sometimes, and the body language. Doesn't you know mm. the moaning mm. each other and the moaning mm. at the referees and right you know so and I, listen I was, I was one of the biggest moaners in the world yeah me and Roy King used to used to moan at the referees all the time but we got on with our game and we played our game you know some players they look at they spend a lot of time moaning and actually playing oh, yeah. playing their game and you can see it would and, you and have liked Bruno Fernandez <clears throat> to be your captain um, no I, I, I don't think listen I think captains are completely different nowadays you know when you talk about the greats of Brian Robsons and. You know, the Roy Keynes and Patrick Vieira and Tony Adams and people like that. Great, yeah. great captains. Stand out. Stand out leaders. Yeah. You know, and some people are different. Beckham Is was Bruno a captain. leader? Beck- Beckham was a leader by the way he played. He wasn't very talkative, mm. but he was a leader by right. the way he played. Right. I don't know what I see in Fernandes as. Is he a leader by the way he plays? Because I feel at the moment he's not playing to the best of his ability. Mm. Yes, he scored the win against Fulham, but as far as a leader, you have a dirt by organisation. I, as a captain, always felt... Um, because I've been privileged to captain every team I play for. My main thing was if I wasn't playing well, make sure the people around you are playing well, okay? Because it shows how bad you're playing, okay? That's the part mm. of being a captain, knowing your players and getting yeah. the best out of them. Yeah. And I think when you look at Fernandez, I think sometimes it's, a, it's just about him. If he's not playing well, then mm. you can sit in his body language yeah. Yeah. and you can see him arguing with refs and all. We're sitting on November the 27th. Paul Ince, I'll put mm. you right in the spot. It's unfair, but I'll do it. Where do United finish? In May, fourth, fourth. That's the best they can do. I'm not saying it's the best they can do. All I'm saying, if they want to challenge the likes, as Cole said, you know, Liverpool's and Arsenal's and Man City, they've got to up their game. And at the moment, they're winning games, but not playing enough to get into, t- into the top three. Fourth, fifth. <laughs> That's was shocking that you got to get to it. Jimmy, if I would have said third, he would have said fourth. If I would have said first, he would have said second. Oh, no, I, I, I thought you were going to say fifth. Did you? <laughs> yeah. You're 100% essential download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Paul, many people asking me to ask you how you reflect on your career. And of course, one of the, one of the most significant times you touched on it was when you left West Ham United. And you put the record straight about what happened when you went, went from West Ham United uh, to Manchester United, if indeed the record needed to be put straight. But you're just being honest, as you always are. So I look at your time and I look at your medal hall, your honours hall at Manchester United. Um... 28 goals in 228 uh, appearances. A um, couple of Premier League titles, a couple of FA Cups, uh, a League Cup, three charity shields, European Cup Winners Cup, I remember that. European Super Cup as well. I mean, when you got together and your working relationship <coughs> with Sir Alex, what was it like and where did it get to? I mean, when was the best time for you working under Sir Alex? Um, listen, I think, you know, all the time working under Sir Alex is a good time because you're always learning something. You're always learning something. Listen, like you know, if you looked at every player in our squad, they would tell you they'd better fall out with Sir Alex Ferguson. It, it, it was just a natural thing. They'd had a fallout with him. Of course they did. Yeah, it was, it was, everybody it, did. Everyone did. It was nothing new. It wasn't like it's kind of different nowadays because I think players are a lot more fragile than what they were in our time, um, and we were strong personalities. But you always fall out of Sir Alex Ferguson because. We had egos. We had egos. And when you've got egos, they clash, whether it's a player on player, whether it's player on manager. And if the gaffer says something, Sir Alex Ferguson's last words were the worst last words you'll hear. And what he says at the end of a right, 
but it didn't mean you agreed with them. So we're opinionated. So when you're opinionated, you're going to have clashes with managers mm. or coaches. It was natural as that, but it was done and dusted. We had a, we had a game at Norwich, which was a big, big game, 92, 93 it was. And Norwich at the time were going for the title. Very, very good team they had at the time. Um, and I think we won the game 3-1, 3-0, something like that. So, so it was about five minutes to go and I've got the ball and I've gone on a little mazy and I've lost the ball. They've gone up the pitch, nearly scored. Didn't think nothing of it. They thought, ah. So we get into the change room. All the lads are like patting each other on the back and saying well done and that. You know, I'm joining in the fun and then so Alex comes storming through the door like Rambo. Um, you know, absolutely slaughter me, shadow. You know, you're doing this. You're not Maradona. Give the ball past the past the best players and all that stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, where's this come from? You know, and um, me being me, you know, the, you bit uh, back. I bit back. It's you know, I wasn't gonna, you know, it wasn't a case of let them get away with it, but we just beat one of the total contenders comfortably at Carrow Road, and I've had a decent game, and we won three 0 three one, and it's it was all about standards for him and doing the right things all the time and not coming away from it. And that shows all the greatness of the man. But me, I, being me as a, as a character I was at the time, bit back, started having a shouting match. Um, you had to be restrained by four teammates, did you? <laughs> oh, you must have been strong. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I, thought was, I thought it was eight, but obviously I'll take four. <laughs> I'll take, I'll take, I'll take were you, four. Were you seriously having a go? Yeah, I was having a go, yeah. It, it was like one of... You know, a few times that I, I actually... Because I don't think it's right. I, I, I personally, now looking back on it, I don't think it's right that a player should be actually confronting a manager, any manager. don't care where, but, but of what elk. I just I think it's not the right thing. But when emotions run high and you're, you get accused of just one minor detail and we've won the game, I had to go back and, you know, people came in, Sharpie, all that, up, Brian Kidd, and, and um, that was it. Got back on a coach. He didn't speak to me. I didn't speak to him. Um, I think it was a Tuesday night we played uh, Norwich. So on the Thursday, we come back in. So the lads who played on the Tuesday, we played head tennis. And as Robbo, Robbo said to her, I like to win. So um, we got five either side. So Fergie's a referee. I've not even spoke to Fergie for 48 hours now. Not said good morning to him or nothing. Um, so, <laughs> He's so stubborn. <laughs> so the game's going, goes, going. First to 11. Gets to 10-10. Ball goes up in the air, talking about overhead kicks. I did overhead <laughs> kick. Right in the corner of the, of, of the court, win the game 11 10. We're jumping about. Next minute, Sadik goes, Sadik's first one goes, ball was out. And I'm like, the ball, the ball wasn't out, Jim, it was in. But because I wasn't speaking to him, I couldn't say anything and I was just bubbling underneath because we hadn't spoken for 48 hours. I couldn't <laughs> contest the decision. So he goes, winners, them. So I'm walking away. And then all of a sudden he goes, Incy. And I turned around and he went, only one governor here, son. <laughs> <laughs> and we started to laugh. And then yeah. after that, we were speaking again. And that was it. And that was it. That's the greatness of the man. I mean, that was phenomenal because mm. it was feisty in that Norwich dressing room, was mm. it not? I mean, he was saying, you've got to look up when you're on a run. That's what mm. he was annoyed about. You apparently said, well, if I'm that bad, why don't you sell me? You, and then a shocking word, Mr. Inns. But... <laughs> And he said, no, you, you, I don't, don't, I, I, you don't have the bottle to sell me, you said to Sir Alex. And no doubt, <laughs> you'd say that. <laughs> no doubt that's what caused the, uh, you know, the, the, the feistiness between the two of you, the friction. No, no listen, no, no, I think Sir Alex Ferguson really could have dealt with it in a, in a way we've just won the game. There was no need to come in and up, upset the atmosphere that was being generated in the changing yeah. room. Where did the word governor come <clears> from? Did you christen yourself governor? No, I think listen, what people don't understand, and I hate when people say self-proclaimed governor. Governor was a thing back in my day when I was at Dagenham growing up. And it was um, all my boys, we used to go to a snooker hall called Nelson's in Green Lane, Dagenham. And every time we played snooker or won a card game, we'd go, oh, hit a good shot. You'd say, oh, who's the governor? Who's the governor? It was just a thing we would brought up on in, in, in Dagenham. When I go to Manchester United, we're doing a shooting session, Peter Schmeichel's in goal one of the best goalkeepers of all time. Um, and he loves to, like, go into the goals and say, no-one's going to get past me, no-one's going to score. And at times, you couldn't beat him. He was unbeatable, Schmeichs. Um And then one time, I got a boy on my left foot, believe it or not, Carl, and I smashed one, <laughs> in, the, smashed one in the top-hand corner, and I went running around the pitch going, who's the governor, who's the governor? Guess what I normally say? Yeah. 
And then every time I scored, I kept saying it. And then Brian Kidd called me Gov once, and all of a sudden... It sticks. It sticks. And it's yeah. quite nice, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's nothing into it. It's nothing like... It's quite nice. <laughs> quite nice. <laughs> it's nothing more a nickname, is there? You know, and Not I think people kind of use that to think, well, he called himself the governor, which is a load of crap, because yeah. that wasn't, wasn't the case. That's when, where it come from. When the end came at Manchester United, mm-hmm. how did it come? Well, I was one up against Giggsy on the golf course. That's for sure, at Worsley Park. You know where Worsley Park come? Yeah. Uh, I was one up. It's free to play. I was in the buggy and um, got a phone call. Um, said, it's um, Sir Alex, uh, I want to see you. So I said, OK, I'll come and see you tomorrow at the training ground. He went, no, no, and I'm at the, at the golf club. So I'm thinking again, I've done something wrong. Absolutely pooing me pants, you know what I mean? To think, what have I done wrong? He was a scary man. <laughs> you know, he was a scary man. But when I got into the car, into his car, he looked quite relaxed and quite happy. So I thought, there's not an issue. Um, so ultimately he just said, listen, Paul, we've accepted a bid from Inter Milan. We want to build a new training ground. That's in Carrington. You know, we've got Nicky Buck coming through um, as, as a young, very good midfield player. And it's always an offer we can't accept. Can't reject, sorry. So I was shocked, you know what I mean? Because prior to that, we was, I was discussing with Martin Edwards about a four-year deal. I've already been there six years. Normally you get your four years, you get your testimonial, which we don't do nowadays, but... You know, that's what happened in our time. You get your testimonial. Uh, so to hear that was kind of like shell-shocked. You know what I mean? Did I you was, know anything about Inter Milan's interest? Well, I, I, I heard after that, that was at the Crystal Palace game, the infamous Eric Cantona thing, um, yeah. watching me play, um, and Cantona. But I, I kind of set myself on being at Mate United for the rest of my life. You know, I was getting to, what, 26, 27. You know what I mean? Thomas was only two, he was at nursery. So there was a lot of, you know, I never really went to school. So to go to Italy and try and learn another land was kind of a bit was a bit of a concern. But ultimately, I was, I was happy at, at Manchester United. Um, but then once it said that they accept, once someone accepts the price, you feel that you're not wanted, mm. and that's what I felt like I wasn't wanted. So you just sit with him in his car. Yep. Talking and he about, tells you that's it. And tells me that's it. So anyway. Giggsy ends up coming back because he, he had to walk back Giggsy because he was like I mean I took the buggy he wasn't happy um, <laughs> he was fuming so anyway as it goes I go back home I tell my wife Claire listen I think we could be off I'm not too sure but I think we could be off um, so we get talking my agent keeps talking to Inter Milan back forth back forth so then all of a sudden Inter Milan come over to my house in Bramall where I used to live <clears throat> all the press all that lot so Massimo Moratti comes over with Vincenzo, vice president, a couple of henchmen. Moratti know. came to, personally? Yeah, to the house. Um, and I've got my agent there, Steve Cutner. So we're <laughs> all sitting in the kitchen, all sitting in the kitchen discussing the finances, as you do. Um, I can't remember at the time, you know, that Serie A was the best league in the world then. You talk about the great players who were mm-hmm. there, you know what I mean? And um, so it was something that was kind of, I was getting, you know, I did. I wasn't happy, but something I, I wanted to try and experience. So the phone rings, all right? All of a sudden, pick up the phone, it's Sir Alex. He's in Colorado, Colorado Springs, he was, he was in Colorado Springs. And I said, oh, Cafe, you doing X, Y, and Z. He said, oh, Paul, listen, I've had a little bit of rethink. Um, I want you to stay. And I said, Gaffer, no disrespect. I've got Marathi, vice president in my kitchen, with two henchmen, <laughs> like they could take you out any time they wanted to, with my agent, <laughs> discussing the contract. There's no way I can tell them now that I'm, I'm not going to sign. And I was close to saying I wanted to stay because, you know, I love my time at Manchester United. But I said, no, it's a new experience for me. I wanted to try it. And when I look back at my whole career, it's probably the best two years of my whole career just because I, was, I wasn't I was clever at school. You know what I mean? I wasn't educated. But I went in there, learnt a new language, different climate. Yeah. Um, and thoroughly enjoyed my time there. You left Manchester United. You mentioned you joined into Milan. You mentioned that Sir Alex would have wished you to stay and mm. came in at the last moment. But we know history tells us you went to Inter Milan and you played alongside the <clears> likes <throat> of Nicola Berti, Zamorano, Jorkev, Zanetti, Roberto Carlos. What a team they had. And thereafter, what happened? You leave Inter Milan and you join Liverpool. And of course, inevitably, along the way, Liverpool were going to be playing Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United. And there was a famous team talk in 1998 when Sir Alex addressed the United squad and said, yeah, yeah there's going to be a certain Mr Ince playing for them and um, we better be aware of that. I want you to go back three years ago how we lost the league. We lost the league at Anfield. 
but not listen to the instruction of Birmingham Bannerman. And they're given in the license just go and attack without any defence of duties. But if he tries to bill you, enjoy it. Don't let him attempt to bill you. Right? You just make sure you're ready for him tomorrow. And that's all you need to worry about him. This big time Charlie bit. It's against f***ing men, am I right? And that's all you need to worry about him. Is he going to do me Redknapp? That's a, that is a problem for them, by the way. I don't think they have a chance what you have got. Any questions? <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I've never heard that before, you know. First time I've heard it. So you get a special mention, <clears throat> and that says something about you as a player mm. that Sir Alex had to give you a special... Can you remember what happened in that game? <sighs> Actually, 1998 you cool. against United I'm not sure but he certainly was clearly concerned about you cop end I scored at the cop end that was an FA Cup game wasn't it oh. but I remember scoring for Liverpool at Old Trafford I don't know but what I do know he seemed very concerned about me um, what I do say as well he's not forgotten about that Norwich game because he's still bringing up with defensive lack of defensive capabilities I missed that. Bit. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> Funny, <isn't it? laughs> but listen, I, I think, listen, I, I, I'm not sure what. I wish Simon Jordan was sitting here now because I'll ask him what the definition of big time Charlie means. Because I, I'm not sure what it actually means, but I know that when you, big time means you're in the big time. And when you play for the teams that I've played for, and when you play for the teams that, like Manchester United, you are big time Charlie because you're playing for the biggest, biggest teams. Um, and when you think about the words they use, the word bully. Bully was not really the word I would use. It's probably intimidating. And the great mate in Ed Sides used to intimidate teams. You know, the, the presence, the mm. likes of Mark Hughes and, you know, Robson and Roy Keane. Yeah. You know, they used to intimidate Steve Bruce. And they used he to intimidate knew you were like that. And the thing is, he knew we were all like that. He knew we were all like that. Not just me, but obviously... He could, he, if Roy Keane had gone from mate night to Liverpool, he'd, he'd been telling me exactly the same thing about Roy yeah. Keane. You've no regrets on going to <clears throat> Liverpool after Inter Milan. You said you scored at the cop end against United. Mm-hmm. And celebrated. There are, prob- <laughs> there are probably some <laughs> Manchester United fans listening to this lunch and will think, well, that there and then he committed the cardinal sin. No, I think I, I always kind of felt, and I've said this time and time again, <clears throat> and, and it's no disrespect to both teams, if I'd had, I would never have gone from Manchester United straight to Liverpool. I would never have gone from Liverpool straight to Manchester United. That's a cardinal sin, Okay. When I, when I left to go to Inter Milan, I didn't want to leave Manchester United. Okay, When I came back from Inter Milan, Manchester United had first refusal on me. So I could easily come back to Manchester United. They turned that decision not to take me back. Okay, They had the option to take you <clears> back and they didn't <clears> do Mate it. Manchester had the option to take me back. Okay, Whether I would have gone back, I don't know. But all I know is that I had two years at Inter. I didn't want to go back from Inter. I had another three years left on my contract. Um, obviously the family situation was difficult so we came back we just signed Ronaldo for the next season and I wanted to play with him but I obviously didn't get the luxury of doing that Peter Robinson came over from Liverpool we sat down we had lunch we agreed that that was the way I was going to go I loved the North West I spent six, seven years there at, at, at Mate United I knew Jamie Redknapp I knew Robbie Fowler I knew David James so it was just like easy to settle in Was there any doubt in your mind that it was the right decision? None whatsoever, you know, because I've always looked at the Liverpool fans as knowledgeable people, and that, and just as a, as a city, you know, they look after their own, and as soon as you become their own, they take you in. Irrespective of whether you played here, whether you played there, they take you in. And from day one, I had not one problem with the Liverpool So there's people. nobody better to ask, which is the bigger club, Manchester United or Liverpool? <laughs> I think you're trying to you're trying to get me killed here, Jim. Listen, I, listen. Nobody better to ask. I, I, I think when you kind of look at the history of both clubs and you go back from the 80s when Liverpool were basically winning everything and the 70s, 70s, sorry, when and it was 80s. A and 80s, yeah. Um, I've got your <laughs> Liverpool fans, sorry. <laughs> and then you go back to United. That was in the 90s. There's always been that rivalry between the two. You know, Liverpool are global, and I don't think it's just as a football club, but when you go back to the Busby Babes, you know, that affected the whole world, you know, what happened then, you know, and that's mm. why Liverpool are going to be bigger than at most teams. When Liverpool, things that make, you know, they don't go well, they're back of the page, they're front of the page, you know. So I think it's a lot of combinations. Liverpool, I love both, playing for both. I thought the fans at Liverpool were so... They're knowledgeable fans. You never see Liverpool fans boo their players. 
you know, I've watched a lot of games. They very rarely blew their players. And might not have fans too. So it must have been difficult for Liverpool fans to accept me. But they did. And I still live in the world to this day. And all, all I do when I look back at my career is that every game, I wasn't the most talented player. But every game, I like to think I'll commit myself 110%. And, and in terms of expectation, <clears throat> which shirt, United or Liverpool, which shirt weighed heaviest? Um, you know, it was different. <laughs> mate, different questions. No, no, mate, mate, no, mate, no, shirt. I always felt the expectation at mate night was to win. And it, like it is now, you know, when you go to mate night, you're expected to win and win and win. Not to say that wasn't the case at Liverpool. The difference when I went to Liverpool was that the players didn't have the mentality to want to win a title. Listen, we had a very, very good side. Fowler, McManaman, Redknapp, Patrick Berger, okay? But we didn't have the mentality and the desire to do what it took to win a title. Yeah. And that was the only difference in between the does two. Does that frustrate players. you today? It does. It really, really does. Because I say, I mentioned Robbie Fowler, I mentioned Michael Owen, with some fan, David James, with some fantastic players. And I'm just trying to compare. I don't compare the two clubs as clubs. I compare the times that I went into each club and the players' mm. mentality and attitude to try and do something, you know. And when you look at these two mega, mega clubs, to think they haven't won a title for 15, 20 years yeah. ago and make United, yeah. yeah. it's a, such a shame. But um, I enjoyed both my time at both those clubs. Well done, Paul. Do you think he answered the question, Carl? No. Which is a bigger club? Yeah, he didn't answer that, did he? I was, no. That's one way to answer you. No. Well, listen, listen. Liverpool fans would say Liverpool's the biggest club. <laughs> Mate, not fans would say Mate, not the biggest club. The bottom line is, as far as I'm concerned, I think I think what's interesting when West Ham's the biggest club. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Coliseum of Confrontation. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. Please leave us a five star review wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back tomorrow to bring you the best of the show.